0: Well, hello and welcome to uh, another episode of GU Cast in our post-ASCO Highlights uh, session. I'm here uh, with uh, Renew Eepen, urologist at Peter Mac. Hello, Renew.
1: Good morning, Declan. Great to he- be here with uh, a super celebrity of the GU world. Yes,
0: yes, we are excited. And, and well, that's, our, that's to Ben me. Tran, oh. isn't it? Yes.
1: Two super <laughs> celebrities. Sorry, Ben.
0: Yes, that's him chiming in. He jumped up when he heard the word celebrity. It's uh, <laughs> Dr. Ben Tran, a GU medical oncologist at Peter Mac, uh, back uh, yet again for another GU cast. Welcome back, Ben. Thanks for having me. I'm going to organize a hostile takeover soon.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We are worried about that.
0: Come on, we have this nice, big, happy, (laughs) multidisciplinary family that you're the main chunk of, actually. Um, Yes, so Ben, uh, GU medical oncologist, is back with us for this episode and uh, continuing our theme this week of post-ASCO, virtual ASCO highlights. Today, we're going to focus on uh, kidney cancer. And so we have reached out to a a big king uh, in the world of uh, kidney cancer, Uh, joining us uh, on Zoom from California. It's uh, Dr. Monty Pal, Hello, Monty. Can you hear us?
2: I sure can. It's great to be here, Declan.
0: Terrific. So Dr. Samantha Pal leads the kidney cancer program at City of Hope and, uh, of course, is a huge KOL in, in the world of GU cancers and uh, renal cancer is one of his really big uh, areas of interest. And uh, um, Monty... Uh, 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 we can see you on the screens here. We, we love being able to reach out to our friends on Zoom uh, on these podcasts. But, of course, everyone's only hearing the voices. But uh, it does feel like you're you're almost here with us. We could almost reach out and touch him, couldn't we, Ben?
3: Very much so. <laughs> <laughs> put your hands down. Put your <laughs> hands down.
0: So, um, uh, Monty, thank you for joining us. And it's just a few days after Virtual Asco finished. And as we've been asking some of our other uh, uh, guests this week, how was it for you? How was Virtual Asco?
2: You know, such a different experience. I have to tell you, I miss McCormick Center so much. I never thought I'd say that. Um, But with all the bustle of ASCO and as much as we complain about the long lines and paying excessive amounts for coffee, uh, there's something to be said in retrospect now for just being there with colleagues. I really miss that part of it.
0: And some of the best work gets done in the in the long queue for the coffee line, or the extremely long walk to the next poster session, or, or walking across to the Hilton or whatever. Isn't that right? Yeah. I love the adrenaline rush I get from
3: ASCO, Right, it's just this big crowd, all this exciting data, friends from all over the world. Um, it was a big miss from us here in Australia. You know, I'd, I didn't watch uh, all the me or the presentations live. I kind of saved them for for Monday or Tuesday, a couple of days later. Did you watch them live, Monty? Did you did you see them as they were released?
2: I, I have to confess, I did a couple of them live. I've still got a couple in my queue for, you know, when I'm on the treadmill over this next week or two uh, to watch, to, to keep me going. Um, but no, certainly not probably the same volume of uh, video that I would have watched in person.
3: Yeah. What I really don't miss was the, is the flight over, Monty. Mm-hmm. The, the 14 hours across the Pacific, the layover in LA, and then that really horrible four four-and-a-half-hour four flight to Chicago. Um, you know, when it's middle of the night for us, you know, that's a rough flight.
2: Yeah. I can't remember if I ran into you, Ben, or or perhaps it was you, Declan, uh, at ASCO GU. I remember seeing a bunch of you coming off the plane at SFO. Um, (laughs) That might've been ASCO as well, but um, I just felt so bad for, for you guys having to yeah, you know, schlep all the way over here, and then you know, go straight to sessions. More or less, it's got to be tough.
0: oh and you know what it's like. You've been here. In fact, we were just reminiscing. You were you were here in this building at Peter Mac um, uh, and, uh, less than two years ago when you joined us for the uh, USANS annual scientific meeting, and uh, and uh, we miss those moments. We miss people uh, making that effort to come across and see us and, and share uh, latest discoveries. But hopefully, it'll come back again sometime.
3: So, Monty, I think the most exciting data from ASCO uh, was all the non-clear stuff. And you gave a fantastic discussion of a lot of the abstracts that were presented in that space. Um, and I really want to focus on that discussion. But before we get to that, I just want to, for the listeners um, and those who are not familiar with treating a metastatic kidney cancer, just make sure that they're aware of the significant advances we've made. You know, Many of the urologists listening in may remember that perhaps all we had at, uh, several years ago was sutin, and I remember a few urologists, not those in the room, were threatening to prescribe um, those drugs in my patients. But luckily that never happened. But Monty, massive developments in kidney cancer. We've, we've had ipinevo um, in the intermittent and poor risk population. We've had axipembro and avalumab a in pembro. And more recently, a press release about nevocabo. An exciting time to be treating kidney cancer. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you have any preferences over one combination over another is uh you have access to the more at city of hope do you more or
2: less yeah more or less it's a great question ben you know i I have to tell you that for intermediate and poor risk disease for the most part i'm using epinevo uh for good risk disease i'm really staying away from combinations for the most part you know I, i really have and it might be a little bit of an outlying philosophy Um, but a a true belief that in that particular population, we should try to minimize treatment so we don't do any harm. You know, these are patients that by definition, by being good risk, are going to be alive for a long time. And I I just, you know, hate the idea of having them endure sustained uh, toxicity from a doublet if it's not necessary.
3: Yeah. Um, Let's get to the crux of the discussion, this non-clear stuff. A lot of excellent presentations um, um, by key opinion leaders on several different topics the focus of your discussion was about um, whether it's a mixed bag uh, of all histologies or we we really need to split these histologies out and even into molecular subtypes can you expand upon that a little bit and then we can get into each of the individual presentations
2: yeah sure you know I have to commend uh, a lot of investigators in the kidney cancer community for really trying to address non-clear cell disease. Um, I think that some of our earlier efforts, I'm talking about trials like ESPN and Aspen, were uh, lumpers as opposed to splitters. You know, We basically put multiple different histologic subtypes into the same uh, mixed bag, as you referred to, Ben. Um, And what came out of studies like that is really not a lot of definitive evidence for treating any individual histology. And I think that to their credit, the authors of the abstracts of this year's ASCO meeting Really did quite well to divvy up populations into either histologic or molecular subtypes.
3: Why don't we start with uh, the the data data, Declan? You've got a little. little
0: I was flip. Yeah, I was fascinated, uh, of course, and we, we, maybe you'll give us a top line um, summary, and uh, and then we can go to what they said about it. But the savalitinib study that uh, Tony Chueri Uh, read out, um, uh, which was uh, a biomarker driven trial for savolitinib in in papillary renal cell carcinoma is obviously one that we were all looking towards thinking, rare cancer, not much we can offer. Uh, What was your take on, uh, on the data? It did close early, of course, and it was a small trial.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I have to tell you that I was just surprised that they ended up shutting it down. If you look at the fine print of the study, it wasn't closed because of futility it was actually closed uh, on account of a separate translational study that looked at the activity of sinitinib in the context of med-altered patients, and that really prompted them to revise their estimates around accrual. It's a really complex uh, strategy for closure in my mind, um, and I think many in the investigative community would have been much happier to see the trial proceed to completion. Uh, just for those of you who haven't familiarized yourself with the trial design, it's uh, sinitinib versus Savalib. But specifically, and this is the kicker, it's in a met-selected population. Uh, So the study was planned to have, I think, closer to 200 patients ended up closing after just 60 were enrolled.
0: Yeah, it, it is interesting and I suppose the other landscape at the time was IO coming in up front and kind of seeming to benefit uh, all comers but I, I want to play you a, a little clip uh, for a sec, Monty, and I took this, I stole this off the Euromigos um, uh, podcast, a uh, really good podcast that uh, Tom Powell's and Brian Rinney and co. Uh, run and um, and they posted this a few days ago at, uh, uh, discussing the findings of savolitinib with um, uh, with Tony Chuary and I encourage you to have a listen if you're interested in, in this type of rare cancer but here was what uh, Tom powells uh, said uh, to tony uh, just based on on this data and the trial closing early my concern is that we what you have shown is the biomarker appears to be really important and the other the danger is we close our eyes we walk down from halfway up the mountain back into the uncharted waters of unselected patients And we continue to pursue that approach. We clearly are now at a crossroads in papillary renal cancer, where we either think the biomarker is important, or we think we don't need it because we're helping so many patients, the biomarker is not important. I put it to you that none of the drugs we're using at the moment is helping most patients. So therefore, your approach, for me, appears to be the right one. And we need to continue to pursue that. What do you think?
2: Yeah, um, that's really not fair, Declan. Having me speak after Tom Powell's—I so, mean, he's so poetic. <laughs>
0: I know the the the, ink, the bloody palms with their <laughs> lyricism and their great metaphors uh, halfway up the mountain, but, uh, but be <laughs> I suppose he was making the point about the the, the driven things. Actually, interestingly, on that podcast as well, that issue of futility and uh, Tony was very very quick to correct. You know that that perception that was disclosed due to a futility issue. And no, it wasn't, and it was exactly as as you said. It was for other reasons. Um, but I suppose uh, you know Tom's arguing there that we should not. Um, lose track of these uh, biomarker-driven approaches um, uh, in in these rare cancers, uh, or should we? You know, it, it, should we should we reverse out a little bit? These are hard studies to do. Rare cancers, you know, takes a while to um, accumulate the data, and the landscape can change quickly, as it has done in renal cancer during the, these time periods. Yeah, no, I,
2: I I agree with you, Declan. You know, I think the genomic profiling. these non-clear cell subtypes is so critical. And you never know what you're going to turn up. Uh, Non-clear cell disease is just so heterogeneous. I've had this string of patients with Papillary renal cell carcinoma who had ALK translocations, EML4-ALK, and that's this you know rare abnormality, this fusion that you see in about four percent of patients with lung cancer, and you know lo and behold, they responded beautifully uh, to ALK-directed therapies. So you know again, I, I think that we might have to really slice the pie pretty thin amongst these non-clear cell patients, but if we go by this genetic algorithm or treating based on uh, tumor genomics, I think patients are going to stand to benefit.
3: I think we can go even even deeper, Monty. You know, there's, there's different um, met aberrations. You know, I think around 80, 90% of the patients in this study had chromosome 7 gain. But, you know, are we going to see better responses in those with germline met mutations, those with somatic mutations. You know, I think we, sh- we should even delve deeper into that. Uh, there are not all genetic mutations or not all genetic aberrations are the same in the same gene.
2: Yeah, absolutely, uh, and and to your point, then you know I think that in a cumulative fashion, adding in the chromosome seven amps et cetera into the inclusion criteria still yielded a, a very healthy response rate. You know, twenty seven percent with savolitinib. I think it was seven percent with sinitinib. So you know, uh, more than triple the response rate with a targeted approach.
3: Have you used savolitinib much before?
2: You know, I have um, as a part of two experiences. Uh, I was a part of the trial that was reported out in JCO about two years ago now. That was a single-arm study of Savalitinib, and we included both mutated and non-mutated uh, patients uh, based on med status. Um, so that study, I think, really added a lot of credibility to Tony's uh, existing randomized trial. Uh, we also had an arm inclusive of savolitinib on SWOG fifteen hundred, which was a U.S. based cooperative group study. We just finished accrual, so that compared sinitinib to savolitinib, but also to crizotinib and cabazantinib, So three putative MET inhibitors against sinitinib. Um, the Savalitnib arm in this unselected trial, uh, that I was running actually closed early due to futility. Um, and I actually take that as maybe a point in favor of, instead of taking the unselected approach as we did in my trial, taking the selected approach that Tony used in his.
3: How many patients in your center would get, um, genetic sequencing, uh, profiling, is it with kidney cancer, with non-clear cell kidney cancer? Are you profiling most of those patients in your center?
2: You know, we are now. um, I have to tell you that policies have been lax around profiling some of these uh, rare tumor types for a while, and we also have a partnership with a company that City of Hope acquired, uh, my cancer hospital, um, that allows us to do free testing with both whole exome sequencing and RNA-seq, so it's fairly expansive. You capture a lot of mutations with whole exome, a lot of fusions with RNA-seq, so I think that's been a very, very powerful tool for us.
3: And are you limiting that to patients with advanced disease, or are you even even uh, sequencing those with with a localized high risk disease?
2: You know, because there's not a lot of outlets for therapy for localized disease, I've sort of shied away from sequencing yep. those patients. Um, but down the line, if there is an applicable therapy for those folks, I certainly you know see good rationale to sequence them.
3: Yeah, for those Australian, yeah, uh, do we do. Yeah, we have a precision oncology program here, uh, led by V Triple C and Peter Mac, where we sequence all advanced solid cancer patients, and we would consider non-clear cell patients in in a group that we would prioritize. And we have in the past,
0: even non-metastatic,
3: no metastatic. Yeah.
1: yeah, we've had a chat about this in our multidisciplinary meetings who to who to perform genetic testing on. In fact, a lot of our small renal masses that come through, you know, those young patients, those with multiple masses or bilateral masses, should really be screened.
0: Yeah, and it's especially these non-clear cells, aren't they? And a question, yeah. you, you were going to ask a question. We have a real mixed audience um, yeah, listen to this podcast. Uh, just, just some stats we just looked at, actually. More than half of all our listeners are from outside Australia, um, uh, about a quarter of which are from um, uh, Europe uh, side of things. And we know also that it's a very mixed uh, community in terms of, uh, you know, GU specialists uh, of, of all disciplines and also patients and others who, who like to listen to us. But urologists, what, what are their key questions after uh, ASCO? At Renew.
1: I mean, I guess one of the most interesting things for urologists would be, is there anything really happening in the adjuvant setting for for high risk cases? You know, those T3 cases, N1 cases. Um, we know the previous trials looking at TKIs haven't really shown a lot of promise. Um, is there anything new uh, in that sort of arena?
2: You know, I, I wish I could say yes. I mean, I, I th- definitely yeah. think there's a handful of adjuvant and perioperative plus adjuvant studies that are ongoing right now. Um, But until those uh, studies of adjuvant perioperative immunotherapy report out, I I would still say that the general dogma at least here stateside is to just observe patients. We always offer adjuvant synidinib since it's approved out here. Um, But I have yet to have a patient who's taken me up on that. And I think that's very appropriate. Yeah,
1: And I think I already know the answer to this, but what about in the neoadjuvant setting? Anything new?
2: No, not, not much. I mean, I, there are some really innovative trials looking at axiobelumab, axipembro, et cetera, in the new adjuvant space, but I'm still waiting on data from those.
1: Yeah.
3: We'll just move, move on to um, Eric Jonash's data, Monty. I, I think you and Eric were both here uh, a couple of years ago. We had, we had a good time all together. I'm, you went, went for a run with some of our colleagues around down the Yarra, but Eric's data was really fascinating um, in, in patients with von Hippelindau um, syndrome. Can you expand upon that study and then we can have a chat about what that might mean for urologists?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, so VHL syndrome, obviously an incredibly rare entity. um, And Eric's study was really designed at reducing growth and. Uh, metastatic lesions that arise, or perhaps pervasive and invasive uh, renal lesions that arise over the course of time, as well as some of the, you know, mangioblastomas and other problematic, um, you know, non-renal tumors that arise over the course of time. Um, Eric's really done the bulk of work, I would say, of VHL syndrome around the world, um, and has led a trial of azopinib, uh, previously a trial of um, a retrospective assessment of sinitinib, and now is looking at MK6482, which was a HIF inhibitor. Um, and I really think that he demonstrated nicely that MK6482, you know, which really has this mechanistic interplay that makes sense for VHL disease, did well to slow down the growth of, of renal lesions and uh, VHL-related tumours.
3: Well, at uh, in my initial glance at the data, um, I thought maybe the time to response was a bit slow. Then I remember these are all primary kidney cancers and... Um... And perhaps it's just a bit, you know, whereas I would have expected a, a quick response to TKIs for metastatic disease, maybe the reason for the slow response with the median time to response being six months was because these were all primary renal tumours. Is that, did you were you surprised by that or is that kind of what you expected to see?
2: Yeah, great point. You know, he had some nice spider plots in there to his credit that really showed some of the pre-study growth in these lesions. You know, many of them, uh, enter, many of the patients entering into the study have been tracked quite closely prior to entry. Um, But I also would say that, you know, we've been cautioned uh, from investigators involved in the phase two experience of MK642, that, you know, unlike um, veg TKIs the response to this HIF inhibitor uh, may potentially be a bit slower.
3: Okay. And I was also, um, first glance of the response rates, uh, you might've thought a little bit underwhelming, although, although they're still novel in this situation. But when you look at the waterfall plot, 87% of patients had their tumor reduced in size, which was extremely impressive. And I think a message we really need to get out there to urologists.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Eric was suggesting to me, look, you know, we just cranked out this data in time for ASCO. We had a couple of unconfirmed responses as well. So you may see that response rate tick up a couple of points over the course of time. But you're absolutely right, Ben. Very compelling data.
3: And given this is a rare population, how much more data do we need to generate to get this approved, do you think?
2: You know, that, that's really where I'm scratching my head a little bit. Um, I always think that having more drugs available for patients is great. Um, but we have, you know, existing veg that seem to have reasonable activity. If you look at the response rates associated with bezopinib from Eric's previous study that was published in uh, Lancet Oncology, I believe about a year ago now, uh, the response rates were comparable, if not higher, uh, than with MK6482. You know, Eric makes the argument in my discussion with him that um, perhaps some K642 is a lot better tolerated. These are patients that are going to need, need to take these drugs very chronically, so toxicity is a big issue. Um, but I think you need randomized trials, frankly, to make that sort of claim.
0: Yeah.
3: And we stick on the rare uh, or the non clear cell cancers hereditary liver mitosis and renal cell cancer, again, of a familial predisposed cancer. Uh, an uncommon cancer, and it was great to see some really impressive data with Bevacizumab and um in that patient setting. Are you might expand a little bit up on that, and then we can talk talk about... That study as well. Yeah, yeah. So,
2: this was a, a single center study at the NCI um, in uh, Washington, DC, conducted by Ram Srinivasan. Um, he's been incredibly passionate and devoted to HLRCC over the years. He actually ran this study both in HLRCC and sporadic papillary renal cell carcinoma. You know, the response rates were just incredible, above 60% for patients with HLRCC. And, you know, you saw those waterfall plots, Ben, uh, a very, very impressive uh, tumor shrinkage with a combination of bevrelotinib. You know, I had a little bit of skepticism around the study only because, you know, trials like this, you know, tend to recruit a very robust patient population. Patients actually flew in to the NCI to receive therapy. They obviously probably had to make some sort of performance status metric just in order to do that. Um, You know, and at the end of the day, I I definitely think, again, while the data for bevrelotinib is compelling, This is a study that took at least 10 years to complete so far, and is still actually accruing patients. Um, So you got to worry about some degree of selection bias and interpreting data like that. Having said that, HLRCC is a disease where there's no standard of care. I'm still going to be pulling it out for patients who aren't responding to conventional treatments.
3: What would be your first-line treatment at the moment for these patients?
2: Yeah, great question. You know, I mean, if you see uh, the data for sporadic papillary renal cell carcinoma that uh, Rom presented with bevrolatinib, again, very high response rates there. Um, I, I would say that I would probably still stick to an agent like cabozantinib up front. Um, I tend to really uh, read a lot into the multiple case reports, and in particular, a nice retrospective series that uh, Lauren Harshman published last year in Lancet Oncology, looking at CABO across multiple non cell subtypes. I might go there first. I would also say we have huge access issues. I, I'd be curious to know your experience too, getting a regimen like Beverly Lawton have approved, but it's actually tough for us to, you know, get that green lighted um, stateside.
3: Yeah, we have a lot of issues with access. Um, we have this system, the PBS, the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme, which reimburses uh, drugs and that's often happens years after they've been approved, years after the data's been published. So with small studies like this, uh, it'd be difficult to get that reimbursed by our government, and I'm not sure a patient's going to be able to access that. of lotnib's getting cheaper and cheaper, but Bevacizumab isn't.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
3: Do you have some main takeaways you want to share with the audience about your, your take on uh, non-clear cells and where we're heading? Yeah, you know,
2: I mean, I think that what we really need is good randomized data. I hope I can help with that, you know, to some extent um, with SWOG 1500. You know, the data is going to be in shortly. We're hoping to maybe report out at ASCO GU next year. So again, that study has been whittled down from a 4 arm trial to sinitinib versus cabazantinib and papillary renal cell carcinoma. I'm also excited to see some of the next generation uh, studies for uh, non-clear cell kidney cancer looking at immunotherapy. Um, So there's definitely a lot to be done uh, for non-clear cell subtypes. But I guess if I had to leave you with one message, it's just profile, profile, profile. I think there's a lot to be gained from that.
3: We get more centers profiling patients, um, and then we can enroll more patients onto these various... Uh, these smaller studies and get more data that can hopefully make our like, patients' lives a lot better.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So I saw some uh, data on Twitter this morning from ASCO Monty just uh, summarising some of the uh, attendances. So just going, going off cancer uh, for a minute or off renal cancer. Uh, and uh, ASCO seemed to be happy w- with the, the virtual experience, I must say. Um, they're They're saying... Uh, virtual Scientific Program proved our global oncology community remains united in our uh, commitment. Uh, I saw an email saying that there were um, over 42,000 uh, attendees, of which 40,000 were, were health professionals uh, from 138 uh, different countries and there's all sorts of other... Uh, good stats about the amount of downloads and video uh, and so on so so uh, you know that's been well from our point of view the first really big virtual test you know eau virtuals coming um, uh, next month as well uh, and although there were I, I tried to watch some stuff live it was friday night 10 o'clock in the evening when um, when the abstracts got released and some, you know there with a glass of red wine on my own wife gone to bed uh, <laughs> couldn't watch anything it just servers rolled down and so on but you know by the time a few hours went by when i woke up in the morning i could watch some stuff but you you know, it it, it it I think hats off to ASCO; they've done a a very good job. Um, suddenly conjuring up a gigantic uh, technical uh, feat, and to everybody who recorded the videos and and put stuff together. But, you know, it, it seems to it seems to have been successful if you look at those types of metrics. So, a, a question we um asked Betsy Plimack uh, yesterday when we were talking about urethelial cancer was, do you think, despite what you said at the start of this podcast, we will go back? 100% to the, the physical meeting that used to happen in McCormick Place or all those rooms being rented out and all the AV and all the hotel rooms and so on? Or will will the success we see in some of these metrics translate into a proper hybrid meeting? What, what, what do you think, Monty?
2: You know, I, I was actually thinking about a tweet as well uh, from uh, from Ian Davis. Uh, you know, he would commented that it was either in a cab line at ASCO or perhaps, you know, at a bar at ESMO where uh, the whole concept of Ed's Event came about. Um, You know, so I I think that the whole idea of bringing people together in the same physical space is going to have, you know, tremendous um, impact as as time goes on. So I I think we'll probably go back to a live format. I think that there are going to be some uh, bits of this virtual experience that will carry on. I think that the ability to immediately access so much content uh, through, uh, from the meeting is, is incredibly attractive and the ability to sort of pick and choose what you watch on an iPad is fantastic. Um, but hey, next year, we, we've got to bring it back to Chicago. There's no doubt yeah, about I'm
3: that. I'm totally addicted
0: to ASCO, even though my son's birthday falls right in the middle of it. Uh, yeah, that's was right. That he, th- right? He, he, he confessed that the first uh, of his son's birthdays he's attended was. Uh, you must have missed the very first ask, uh, you know, asker when, did, he, when, when, he, was when he was born. Yeah, was the <laughs> only I, I, dragged I dragged him
3: for his first birthday. He came to asker for his first oh. birthday. That was a great wow. plane trip. Both my son and my daughter. In business class because we got upgraded, with my points. <laughs> okay. They both vomited on the plane. My daughter vomiting on a fellow passenger <laughs> that I didn't know.
0: it was the about it though. So if we had that passenger here saying, "What do you think about virtual Alaska?" Because it's interesting. So you you said the same thing, Monty. Ben said the same. We'd say the same, Betty. But we're we're talking to this you know narrow group of KOL type people, and and you are so right, of course. And um, uh, it is very important that that people can get together to to, to make those. Uh, make progress, but I've also seen tweets in response uh, from you know people who maybe are not you know of the forty odd thousand who are not you know presenting in the plenary and and are not even on a poster. They're you know they're just busy oncologists who want to get updated, and they may not. They, they, they I have seen tweets where they're saying this is great, this makes much more sense, and also it's greener and it's this and it's that and you know blah 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 blah. blah. Um, so that's why I think although a physical meeting will be very important in all these major meetings, it may be that it's not actually supposed to. Be for all the delegates, and yeah. the way w- our whole lives are now on demand, and you're used to Netflix, and you're used to this and that, you know, maybe maybe that's what's going to be more attractive. Maybe even if you rent, maybe even if if you booked out the whole of Chicago, as always happens in June every year. Uh, maybe half the people aren't going to come anyway if there's a virtual yeah. option. They're going to, you know, no, 25,000 or 30,000 will not feel like they need to design the next pivotal trial in, in the coffee shop or in the pub with Chris Sweeney and Ian Davis and co. And they will say, no, no, this is much more attractive and it's much greener and it's much this and it's much that. So, so, So although the physical meeting that you yearn for, I think will happen. It may well be that it'll be in a f- you know, fraction the size of the, the conference center and w- with all the benefits that go with having a smaller meeting and that the augmented virtual experience will actually be you know, what actually suits most people.
3: Well, if I don't have to walk from the west building to the east building in five minutes, that would be much appreciated. <laughs> yeah. that's, a, that's, a, that's a good 20-minute walk between those two buildings, trying to get from one section to the next deck one. So. And,
0: and also, though, somebody else made the point that, uh, yeah, apart from those KOLs coming up with their great ideas in, in the pub and so on, that when you do that walk from east to west, you know, with your fellow or when you were a fellow, you know, you get introduced to the Monty Pals of the world and, and you get a yeah. business card, yeah. oh, dude, come visit us and blah, blah, blah. And, and so that sort of social climbing that we've all benefited from actually benefit from. Physical meetings—you may be presenting your poster in the far end of the AUA or the EAU in a small room, but you, you know the chairman of the session is this big KOL uh, in Germany. Uh, you get to meet that person and hand over a business card. That that will not happen in in the virtual meeting. So on the on the other hand, arguing the other side of the coin, uh, I, I think that we that 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 sort of physical environment has benefited all of us uh, as you grow up um, as a specialist or a trainee and so on.
1: And in this virtual setting, I think um, tweets have been more important than ever. To really yeah. kind of get out there, what's happening? What are the, what are the interesting studies? What's being presented live? Um, you know, it's it's been more important than ever to to sort of get on Twitter and, and find out what's happening. You can get a lot of information just from that. Just from Monty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was just looking through your feed. You've tweet you've tweeted and retweeted so much for GUASCO uh, for ASCO this year. And for oh, GU that's Asco, right. Sure, that's right. Well, it's, it's I still fantastic.
2: didn't get to beat Tony Tuarey, so you know I. I... <laughs> Failed in my mind.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's really Monty, it's been, it's been great to have you on and, and discuss the really important data uh, that have come out of ASCO. Uh, and great to get your insights on all that data as well. And we look forward to kind of helping kidney cancer patients live better lives um, moving into the future. I think it's great, it's great to see new drugs come out and, and
0: new options for all our patients.
1: And we look forward to having you back in Australia in the flesh sometime soon.
2: Thanks so much, guys.
0: Thank you. And that's it uh, from us on on GUcast today. Um, We hope you've enjoyed these wrap-ups of uh, ASCO that we've been doing on GUcast this week. Special thanks today, of course, to uh, Monty Powell from City of Hope uh, um, uh, for joining us to talk about kidney cancer. It's been always fantastic to speak to you, Monty, on these matters. Thanks again to uh, Ben Tran for joining us, uh, from Peter Mack, and to my co-host Renu Eapen here at GUcast. We'll be back very soon with more stuff about GU. Thank you, everybody.